The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. So if it looks like this table that gets lifted up here weighs about 50 million pounds, it's because it does. And if you doubt that, you should come up and and check it at the end of our time together today. Whenever there's someone new that runs the camera, we always tell them, you probably want to pick that table up a few times so you have an understanding um, of how heavy it is. And I don't know why we just don't get a lighter table, but we don't. Um, Hey, if you have your Bible, I want you to open it to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 17. We're going to get there here in a little bit. Kind of where we're at in in the biblical story right now is the Lord has promised Abraham and his descendants that they would have a land of their own. And in the book of Joshua, they they begin to they begin to move into that space. And if you read the book of Joshua before, um, it, it kind of presents some some what I would call problematic stories. Um, if what you've already read in the Bible hasn't created some tension um, in you with some of the scenes that we read and some of the things that we see God's people doing, uh, Joshua will will create in you uh, some tension. And this week, as I, was, as I was wrestling through this message, like how we talked about this last, last Sunday, how do we read 174 chapters of the Bible in one week? How do we talk about this mass of biblical text? And it's really hard, and I have only myself to blame because I'm the one that picked this series. Um, what I would encourage you to do, we have a resource on our webpage, westwaychurch.com. It just says current series, how the Bible works. And about three quarters of that page down, you'll see, the, you'll see a resource by, by, the, by Tyndale House called Immerse. And there are several different, it's broken down into volumes. So for instance, today's volume, we're talking about the idea of kingdoms. And we're talking about Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuels, and 1st and 2nd Kings. And one of the things that you're going to find on that page is a link to Tyndale House's page. Um, And they have like seven or eight videos that kind of overview this entire theme of kingdoms. It'll take you about 45 minutes to go through them. But I want to just recommend that in your 168 hours of time this week, I know you think you don't have that much time because you sleep and um, you Netflix binge and you do all of these other all of these other things. But in your time this week, I would encourage you carve out 45 minutes. And not only watch this week's kind of uh, video series, but carve out another 45 minutes and watch next week's. Because we're at that spot where we're just just accelerating as we go through the biblical text. And that, again, that presents some problems for how, how we talk about things. There are some things we don't talk about, you wish I would, things I do talk about, you wish I wouldn't. And as I was thinking about today's message, I've, I've got it broken down into three Three very distinct parts. Now, if you've been in church, having a three-point sermon, that's nothing new, right? But what I, as I've, as I've processed this, um, today's message is really a, a sermon in three parts, in three acts, if you will. Um, and next week is going to be a sermon in four parts, in four different acts. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to go through kind of act one, and then literally I'm going to give you a little break. Um, I'm going to give you a little intermission in between that to kind of collect some thoughts. And then we're just going to move um, into into part two. So so the first part of what we're going to talk about today is I've just called the genocide of Joshua. 
and the conquest of Canaan. So here's what happens. The people are entering into the promised land and God literally tells them to kill everyone in sight. As you go through the promised land, as you go through Canaan, kill them all. Men, women, old and young. Lay waste to this land that you are going into. And if Joshua were alive today, if this were 2021, and Joshua were alive today, when he had completed this war action, we would have Joshua brought up on charges at the Hague for war crimes. We would arrest him, we would take him to the Hague, and we would have him imprisoned for life, possibly even executed. This is challenging for us. But beyond, but beyond these ethical concerns of the text that we're going to talk about, they create real problems in the way that we talk to people who aren't Christians. I've had conversations with people. You know, I've, I've looked through the Old Testament and the Bible, and God is this really brutal God. What? Why, is he, why would he tell people to kill men, women, and children? Like, like I have a real issue with that. And, and what I want you to know is we should. We should read Joshua and we should be a little disturbed by it. In fact, if you read through Joshua and you saw the things that the Israelites did as they waged total war against the people of Canaan, like it's, it's a little stomach churning for me. I wrestle with this. I don't know what to do with it. So we have to ask this question, what's, what's happening in this text? Why would, why would God tell his people um, to do that? One of the things that I have a little phrase that I, that I like to use, and the phrase is just this, it's throwaway verse. I found that when I read and study scripture, if I'm not paying attention, I will just there'll be little verses and little, little sentences of things that I just kind of skip over and I don't really think about the meaning behind those texts. It's kind of a throwaway verse. I, 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 I read through it and I breeze through it so fast that I never really consider what it is. They're, they're kind of easy to ignore and overlook verses. But I've also found the more I read and study scripture, those, those easily ignored and overlooked verses, those those throwaway verses provide the most value, provide hints to what is really taking place in God's word. And one of those, and if you're, in the, if you're using the Bible app today, um, I'm not gonna put every verse today on the screen, but if you're using the Bible app, you'll see these verses. I'm just gonna kind of talk about them. But one of, those, one of those throwaway verses is found in Genesis 15, chapter 16. And here's what's going on in Genesis 15. God has, God has promised Abram that he would be the father of many nations. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago. And he makes this covenant with Abram. And he says, eventually, you're going to, you're going to go into this, into this land. You're going to inherit this land. We call it the promised land. But you're not going to go into this land uh, right away. You're actually, your, your ancestors are going to be enslaved for 400 years. Now, remember, this is hundreds of years before this happens. So one of the things that I love in this little throwaway verse is how God is, God is predicting the future. He's telling Abraham the future about something that hasn't happened yet. Your ancestors are going to be enslaved in a land that's not their own for 400 years. That's 
Egypt. If we were to flip to the end of Genesis, we would see that. Your people are going to be enslaved for 400 years. They're going to be delivered. And then they're going to enter in the land that I will give you, but not yet. And Genesis 15, 16 is this curious little sentence that says, you are not going to inherit it yet because the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. Like that's a curious little sentence. What, is, what does God mean that, that I'm sending you into this promised land, but not yet because the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. So we ought to ask some questions, right? What does this mean? Who are the Amorites? Where do they live? What are the sins of the Amorites? And, and how bad does someone have to be to warrant the destruction from God? You maybe have a whole host of other questions about that text, but that's, that's what I have. Like, who are the Amorites? How bad does someone have to be? Well, because the Bible is a unified text, just like any book that we read. You know, our context for telling us what's in the Bible is the Bible. If we talk about uh, Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn, if we want to know who those characters are, where do we go? We go to Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, right? They tell us about the characters. So all we really have to do is we have to just continue to read the Bible. Well, for, for understanding what the sins of the Amorites are, we just have to go to the book of Leviticus, which we talked about last week. Throughout the book, we read about purity laws and cleanliness and uncleanliness and what the priests were supposed to do, how our behaviors are what, are what reveal what we really believe about God. It's not just our words, but it's our behaviors that reveal what we really believe about God. And remember, in, in Leviticus, the people haven't entered into God's kingdom yet, into the land yet. And in Leviticus 18, 1 to 4, again, this is in the Bible app. You can read it in there. Leviticus 18, 1 to 4, Moses tells the people through God, do not act like the people in Egypt where you used to live or like the people in Canaan where you are heading. Don't imitate them, obey me. And so then what God does and what Moses does in Leviticus 18 is he, he goes through this entire chapter and he lists off like all of this deviant sexual behavior, okay? I'm not gonna, you just read it if you wanna know. If you wanna know all of the things that God warns his people against, read through Leviticus 18. And what God is saying is don't be like them. I'm sending you into this land, don't be like them. Well, guess where the Amorites live? The Amorites live in Canaan. And this is like 600 years before the Hebrews are gonna come in. So already, historically speaking, the people of Canaan are, are pretty bad people, are pretty rough people. And there's another little verse, and it's one of those little, it's one of those little throwaway verses right in the middle of Leviticus 18, and it says this. Do not permit any of your children to be offered as a sacrifice to Molech, for you must not bring shame on the name of your God. I am the Lord. So what does that mean? God is presenting us with this picture of some pretty nasty people. Here's how the people in Canaan, here's how the Amorites worshiped Moloch. 
They threw their infants into fires. That was, that was how they worshiped the God of Molech. And between the time that, that, that God tells Abraham that the Amorites weren't yet ready for destruction and this 600 years, they had, they had time for repentance. See, we think in 2021, and we're gonna, this will be a theme that we kind of touch on throughout act one today. We seem to think in 2021 that people are basically good, right? That's our, that's our prevailing cultural narrative. If given the choice, we're gonna choose the good thing. And I think we believe that people have always thought that way. Well, the Amorites had 600 years to stop throwing their babies in the fire. I we have to ask a question. How long would we, in our cultured 2021, allow a nation to function like that? Wouldn't you think at some point we would rise up and, and, and we, would, we would invade or attack because you just don't go around killing babies, right? I'm laying the irony on pretty thickly here in case you're missing it. See, these people are wicked and evil and they have 600 years to turn from their wickedness. So the Hebrews come along and, and now they're going to be used as an instrument of God's justice on the people of Canaan. So when we ask this question, okay, well, how, how, can, God, how can God allow this? How can God sanction this? How can God desire this? Well, the people in Canaan are pretty wicked people. There's, there's, a, there's a time that God has for mercy and grace and patience and kindness and desiring for people to repent. And after 600 years, the people in Canaan just don't get it. They just do whatever they want whenever they want, with whomever they want, and however they want. And that includes throwing babies into the fire as, as part of worship. So God is, God is going to judge these people. And we ask the question, well, what gives God the right to do that? Well, that's what we talked at the very beginning of the series. God made us, God created everything. God has that right because he's God and we're not. So he sends his people in. And this isn't, this isn't a, a modern day genocide over, over racial issues, over ethnicity issues. That's what we tend to think about when we think about genocides today, racial or ethnic issues. This is about God's justice. This is about his, his, his toleration and then no longer toleration of, the peop, of sin of the people. And if, if we were to read through all of the Old Testament, we would see that God brings judgment on his own people as well. When they sin, God brings horrible judgment. Read Exodus 32 and Numbers 25. And you will see incredible numbers of God's people being judged for their sin. God is an equal opportunity judge. And the reason that he has not wreaked judgment or has he? The reason God has not wreaked judgment on us is because of his mercy and his kindness and grace. And the, the conquest 
of Canaan ends in the book of Joshua. And Joshua divides the, the land among the 12 tribes. And like Moses, he has, he has some final words for his people. He says this, fear the Lord and serve him completely. And if you abandon him and serve other gods, he will turn against you and destroy you. See, this is, this is a warning. This is a warning that God is giving to his people. You know, when we rolled through, when you guys rolled through Canaan, you brought the hammer of my justice among the people of Canaan. They were wicked, evil people. And Israelites, here's what you need to know. God's people, my people, here's what you need to know. If you don't obey me too, I'm going to bring my hammer of judgment upon you. And, and Becky alluded to that briefly in, when she was talking about the song Ancient of Days today. And we're gonna get to this. Um, we're gonna touch very quickly on it today and get to it more um, next week and the week after that. But God's people were taken to Babylon in captivity because of their sin. God gave every opportunity for them to repent of their sin. And when they did, like he told them in advance. And what's interesting, whether you read Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30, his instructions to the people, or you read Joshua at the end of the book of Joshua, in both times, the people are given this choice. Will you do this? Well, what else are the people going to say? Of course, we're going to do it. Of course, we're going to serve God. Of course, we're going to follow you. Despite years and years and years and years of history that denotes and explains otherwise. We are a people who are constantly saying one thing and doing another. And that's why, that's why our obedience is found in our actions. It's not found in our words. I think one of the things that we can, we can learn from, from Joshua is that God is serious about sin. He's merciful, like he's merciful, right? We, we wanna ask the question, well, why did God do that? That wasn't very kind, that wasn't very nice. I thought God was loving. I thought God did this, I thought God did that. He gave them 700 years to repent of their sin. What's he supposed to do? Just let chaos reign? Like we wouldn't accept that, right? In 2021, we would not allow that. We would not accept chaos to reign. And in our, our country's brief history, we've seen where, where our nation at times has taken a pretty heroic role on the planet Earth. To stop evil, to prevent evil from continuing. But here's the reality we're, we're each given the same choice that God gave to the Hebrews. Are we a righteous and just people? At what point does God bring his hammer of justice upon us? When we no longer seek him out. Who are we going to serve? What choices are we going to make? Here's what I wanna do. I wanna give you a minute. So this is transition. This is act one. 
I wanna give you a minute to think and reflect on this. And one way you can do that is by, if you have a question, if there's something you don't understand, one way you can do that is by sending, a, sending um, the word question to the number that's um, gonna be on the screen. And then on, on Tuesdays, we interact with you on our Facebook Live um, page. Because we, like this is hard, this is hard text. So I wanna give you a minute, if you wanna text something, if you wanna write something down, um, literally, I'm gonna stop talking. I know you don't, and you find that hard to believe. And I'm gonna drink from my water and I'm gonna give you a minute to reflect on what we just talked about. It'll be awkward, you'll be okay. Not as awkward as me standing here on camera live watching this, so you're okay. So Becky tells me that I'm a horrible judge of time. I think something is like a minute and it's actually like 10 seconds. So I will find out tomorrow in our staff meeting how much time actually went by. So God's people promise that they are going to be obedient. They're going to serve God. They are going to be the one that that breaks the narrative, that breaks the mold and does whatever God calls them to do. Well, how'd they do? The chaos of Judges and the hope of Ruth. Well, I just told you how they did. We're actually gonna spend about three months in the book of Judges later this fall. So, So I'm gonna briefly... Uh, just kind of go over, um, go over what the book is about and then save the best for fall. When we turn the page into the book of Judges, we learn two very important things. The first of which is the Hebrews didn't actually destroy all their enemies. They were told to lay waste. And we're like, oh, isn't that good? Like they let some people live, right? How 2021 of us. Right? That's our, that, that's, our, that's our minds that we feel good. So they did not do what God told them to do. And then Joshua dies. And probably one of the worst, one of the most heart-wrenching texts in the entire Bible is this. After the generation that entered the promised land died... The next generation did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done. That is gut-wrenching. In one generation, one, they completely forgot who God was. They completely forgot all the things that he had done. They forgot about the manna in the wilderness and the water from the rock and all of the quail that they could eat as much as they wanted. They forgot about the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They forgot all of those things that God had done for them in just one generation. Their parents failed miserably to pass along 
the history and the traditions of their faith. So what do you think happened? Our culture says, well, if we just give people freedom to do whatever they want, like everything will be fine, right? That's what, that's what we hear. That's the story that we hear. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Groundhog Day. Um, it's older. If you have not seen the movie Groundhog Day, I highly recommend it. Probably top three movies for me for, for what's taking place. It's basically Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes in modern day, about a person who does everything he possibly can to find meaning, fulfillment, and satisfaction, and it's just every day's on repeat. Wakes up the next day, it's the same exact day, so now I'm gonna try this thing, and then I'm gonna try that thing. Well, the book of Judges is Groundhog Day on crack. It is the, it's the worst. It's the worst and that's why we're going to spend a few months talking about it in fall because it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. Because it's what happens when, when people do whatever they want. It reveals what happens when people just live in the freedom from God. The people disobey God. Other nations come in to judge them. Remember, this has been predicted. We are one generation in, right? We think, oh, well, maybe it was this gradual decline. Maybe over a period of four or five or 600 years, the people got worse and worse and worse and worse. No, it was one generation they forgot. So the people started doing all of this crazy stuff. See, because they didn't, because they didn't kill all the people they were supposed to, I know that's like a little twinge when I say that, because they didn't do that, what was, what was happening was all of these people worshiped all of these different gods. And the people in Israel never actually completely turned their back on God. They just let other gods in. So they mixed Molech, believe it or not. They mixed Molech with the Lord God. And they began to integrate all of these other religions and all of these other gods and all of these other belief systems into their Judaism, into their Hebrew faith. And they started being pulled. And, and we see that today, right? How hard it is to be true to Christianity when we have all of these other voices speaking their own truth into us. So, so the people start to do this and and God judges them because he told them he was going to and other nations come in and the people kind of like have this moment where they're like, okay, God, we're sorry. Please deliver us. We promise we will worship you this time. And God says, okay, because he's kind and merciful and loving and just and he sends a person named called a judge who frees the people, defeats their enemy. There's like a period of like 30 years where they're like, yay, we love God again. And then it's Groundhog Day over and over 12 times throughout the book of Judges. And four times in the book of Judges, we hear the phrase, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Like, well, that's the 2021 ideal right there. 
do whatever we want. So this is, that statement is true in two ways. Number one, there was no centralized government. There was no, there was no human king over the people. But the second way that's true is, is it's, a, it's an ethical critique of the people. Absent obedience to God's right and wrong, chaos, death, and destruction reigns. When we don't follow what God has for us, chaos, death, and destruction will reign. A world where everyone does what they think is best is not heaven, it's hell. And if you want to know how bad judges gets, read the last three chapters. You will want to take a shower when you're done. It is, it is brutal what's taking place when people do whatever they want. Um, yesterday, I discovered this uh, podcast on NPR. It's called Land of the Giants. And it's about, it's about um, these big tech organizations, tech, tech companies. There was a few, there was an episode several months ago about Netscape. Anybody remember Netscape when you first used to dial, on, dial up to the internet? Well, the podcast I listened to yesterday was, was, a multi, was the first of many parts about Google. And it's called the Google Empire, which is perfect. Like, I love that word, empire. The Google Empire. Well, I don't know if you know this, but one of their, one of the values, the primary value of the company Google is don't be evil. That sounds pretty good, right? Like our 21st century ears, we hear that. We're like, don't be evil. That sounds pretty good. Well, as I'm running on the treadmill listening to this podcast, I'm like, oh, I can see where this is going. What does don't be evil mean? Who decides what is evil? How do we come to the conclusion about what evil is? Absent rules by God and objective right and wrong, how do we decide what's evil and what's not? Well, they had this little mantra, this little value, and all of a sudden their mantra came up against reality because as a company that wants to make money, which is the role of companies, they found themselves being this really popular search engine, but they weren't making any money. So what they did was they started selling advertising. So here's the thing. When you Google something and you look it up, if you saw the social experiment, you'll know this phrase. If you're not paying for something, you're the product. So when you type something into the Google search engine and the things you see are advertising, now it's marked advertising, but that's just not free information. You're seeing what Google wants you to see. You're seeing what Google is paying or what someone else is paying them to see. So they had this, they had this struggle. Well, okay, so, they did, so Google decided that wasn't evil, right? Google decided that when I go to search for something to see an ad that I don't know is an ad, that's not evil, according to Google. And then like in 2017, it was interesting, someone high up at Google um, was, got caught up in a sexual, um, kind of a sexual abuse scandal. And like 20,000 employees all walked out and they started talking about, don't be evil. I wonder if their list of evil matches Leviticus 18. 
I think some of the things found in Leviticus 18 would have been a pretty good guideline in preventing sexual abuse scandals, right? But that's the Bible, right? The Bible's old, it's a, that was written thousands upon thousands of years ago. It has no meaning for me. I'll just say, don't be evil. And then as I'm listening to this podcast, they started talking more and more and, and they were like, well, we have to wrestle with what does it mean to not be evil when we think about how Google supports law enforcement. That's a hot button, right? We don't want, we don't want Google to support law enforcement and some of the bad things that law enforcement does. Well, I don't know if you know this, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, what's interesting is Google colludes with the Chinese communist government to censor in China. So just so I understand, Google, and I have a Gmail account, just so I understand, working with law enforcement in the United States is evil, but working with the Chinese government who murders and oppresses and persecutes Christians, yeah, that's okay. See, don't be evil. What does this, what does this mean for us? The people of Judges did not need a strong man or a strong woman to save them. They needed someone who was gonna be filled with God's mercy and kindness and grace. And that's why Ruth is the next book in the Bible. Like I was trying to figure out, I'm reading through this and I'm like, why is, why is Ruth here? Because Ruth takes place at the same time the book of Judges takes place. So why is, why is Ruth here? Well, we talked about Ruth back in December. Ruth is a Moabite woman who ends up in Bethlehem with her Hebrew mother-in-law, Naomi. A stranger in a strange land, she finds herself roaming the fields looking for food and encounters Boaz, the son of Rahab, a prostitute from Jericho, which happened to be the first city that the people of Israel rolled through when they hit the promised land. What she finds in Boaz is mercy, grace, and kindness. In the midst of all of this chaos and anarchy and death and destruction, she finds one, one. And are you seeing that trend as we've been talking about throughout this series? She finds one person who acts like he's supposed to, who's fulfilling the Old Testament mandate, who shows kindness and mercy and grace. And she marries him and goes on to be the great, 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 great grandmother of David who becomes king of Israel. Do you see how God is bringing this story together? He's weaving this narrative. Just when we think like, man, again, end of Judges, it's like, oh, And then it's like you flip the page and you read Ruth. And it's this amazing story of kindness and mercy and grace. And just like there are no throwaway verses in the Bible, there are no throwaway people in the Bible either. There are no throwaway people in this room. There are no throwaway people who are watching online right now. God has a reason and a purpose for you. So I'm gonna get a drink of water. You're gonna pause for a minute and reflect And then we're gonna talk about act three of our message today.
talk about the rise and the fall of the kings. Um, sometimes we think that it was never God's plan to have a king in Jerusalem. Well, in Deuteronomy 17, this one's gonna be on the screen. You're about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. This is Moses talking to his people. When you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to elect, select as king the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He, must not, he may not be a foreigner. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth and silver and gold for himself. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord as God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way. And it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. Sounds like pretty good rules for a human leader. Write your own version under the guidance, write your own copy of the scriptures under the, under the guidance of the Levitical priests. Don't collect for yourselves silver and gold and horses and do all of these things. See, Israel's king was supposed to be different than the nations around them. Their king wasn't supposed to be autonomous and show agency. He was supposed to be subject to God and dependent on God's will for the kingdom. God had the rule and authority over his people. And the reality of it was, is that God was the real king and the human king was was a, was a vassal, was an ambassador for God. And as much as we've talked about that over the past several weeks, that, that story should sound familiar to us by this point. You should find a lot of consistency in what we're reading. So I wonder, if you had no idea of the Bible other than what we've already talk about, talked about, what happens next? What do the people do? What do the kings do? Does everyone ride off into the sunset happily ever after? Let's read. This is 1 Samuel 8. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abihah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba, but they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. You know where this is going. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are not rejecting me, or they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods, and now they're giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. 
So Samuel passed the Lord's warning to the people who were asking for a king. This is how the king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops. And some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. Okay, this, you know, this is thousands of years ago. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and attendants. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks and you'll be his slaves. When that day comes, you'll beg for relief from this king you are demanding, but then the Lord will not help you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said. So interesting how God tells the people exactly what they're going to do. He warns them and gives them a choice. And they all say, oh yeah, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna follow you, God. We're gonna be obedient to you. And then when the time comes, they completely fail. Groundhog Day. One more set of texts. This is 1 Kings 9, 15 to 23. This is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, the royal palace, the supporting terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and the cities of Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had captured, had attacked and captured Gezer, killing the Canaanite population and burning it to the ground. He gave the city to his daughter as a wedding gift when she married Solomon. So Solomon rebuilt the city of Gezer. He also built up the towns of Lower Beth Huron, Baalath, and Tamar in the wilderness with his land. He built towns as supply centers and constructed towns where his chariots and horses could be stationed. He built everything they desi he desired in Jerusalem and Lebanon and throughout his entire realm. There were still some people living in the land who were not Israelites, including Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They were descendants of the nations whom the people of Israel had not destroyed. So Solomon conscripted them as slaves, and they served as forced labor to this day. But Solomon did not conscript any of the Israelites forced labor. Instead, he assigned them to serve as fighting men, government officials, officers and captains in his army, commanders of his chariots and charioteers. Solomon appointed 550 of them to supervise the people working on his various projects. I would encourage you, it's in the Bible uh, app, the plan for today. You should read 1 Kings 10, 14 to 29 to see more of how the kings just completely disobeyed what God told them. When given this choice, they chose autonomy and agency. Over the next several hundred years, They'd have a few good kings, mostly lousy kings. And time would pass. This, this united kingdom, which was God's plan, would be split into, into two. And if you read through the rest of the books of 
first and second Kings, what you'll see is the people never really abandoned God. I said this a little earlier. They never really abandoned God. They just accepted all of these other little gods with them and worshiped them along with the Lord God. All of the little stories and narratives of their day, they just accepted and made it part of their own worship of God. They worshiped in different places other than the temple. And what we read, what we feel as we finish out the book of 2 Kings is the kingship and the monarchy is a huge dead end. It's nowhere. It doesn't accomplish what the people thought it was going to accomplish because the people stopped worshiping God with all of their heart and all of their soul and all of their strength. Well, what does God do? He responds the same way he's responded throughout history with kindness and mercy and grace. And this would come in the voice of the prophets is what we're going to talk about next week. The role of the prophets in all of this and how they, how they call out to the kings and how they call out to the people to return to God. Because God has a plan for them and it's not their autonomy, it's him. If you have a question, I'm going to give you a moment to send that in or thought, we want to hear that from you. Jesus in all of this. Jesus is the ultimate Joshua. He deals with our sins through a sacrifice. Jesus is the ultimate judge. He brings justice to those who refuse to repent of their sin. Jesus is the ultimate Boaz. He's the perfect husband of the church who loves his bride and meets all of her needs. And Jesus is the ultimate king who always faithfully represents God. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, grant, we pray, that we may be grounded and settled in your truth by the coming of your Holy Spirit into our hearts. What we do not know, reveal to us. What is lacking within us, make complete. That which we do not know, confirm in us. And keep us blameless in your service through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.